Good morning. I'm Chris Russell, and today we'll be reading from Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, and Genesis 2, 1 through 15. It can be found on pages 1 and 2 in the Pew Bible. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and Genesis 2, 1 through 15. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that, God, that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became, became four rivers. The name of the first is uh, Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land was good. Delum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chris. Good morning, I'm Jimmy Dodd. It's a joy to be here with you. Let me just pray one more time before we jump in. To this passage. Father, thank you for this time to talk about vocation and work. And so, Father, we pray that as we dive into this very important topic, that our hearts and minds would be open to hear truth from you. Father, we pray, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us deeply in this time for your glory and for our good. We pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, do you have days where you wake up and you say, hey, TGIM, thank God it's Monday. Maybe you don't hear that very often. It's usually, thank God, it's Friday because we live in a culture that very much is about let's get through work and let's live for the weekend. 
And I think that there is a sense in which we have missed the connection between Sunday and Monday. We have missed the connection between worship and work. And so this is exciting for us because we're going to take a little break from Matthew. And for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about vocation and the way that God speaks into our workplace. And there is so much that he can say to us about our work. And there's no question, work has changed massively in the midst of COVID. So as a result of COVID, things are now very different in the workplace. 35% now work from home. 62% occasionally work from home. 92% want to work from home. And so there's this new reality of, hey, we can do a lot, a lot at home. We can do all of these things. Let me just say at the very start, there's going to be some confessions in this message and some, you know, just some very basic apologies. Let me just confess, far too often the church for years and years has been more concerned with helping marketplace workers serve in the local body and not doing enough to help you serve in your actual marketplace. So for these next four weeks, we're going to talk about ways in which you can be a lot more effective in your marketplace, in the place where you have been called to work. Because when we see our work and our job and our vocation as a chance to just advance the common good, just of overall society, we're engaged in God's work. And so vocation simply means just our calling. It's what we've been called to do. So we're going to look at here this morning the chaos of work, why there's just so much confusion about work. We're going to talk about the calling to work, which is really the cultural mandate and then the core of work, which is ultimately about the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the chaos of work, the calling to work, and the core of work. So first of all, the chaos of work. Why all of this crazy confusion? Just a brief history lesson. There's a guy named Eusebius. He's a Roman historian. He's a biblical scholar. He's extremely well-known. He became the Bishop of Caesarea in 314 A.D., which gave him a massive voice across the entire church. And Eusebius was a total buffoon. He's a fool. Because he said something which took root in the church, which guided the church for over a thousand years. And Eusebius said this. He said, there's only four occupations that God is really behind. Bishop, priest, monk, and nun. Everything else is just of this world. Now, it's necessary, so it's not evil, but it's not what God wants you to do. There's a spiritual state and there's a temporal state. If you want to really do a spiritual thing, if you want to have a spiritual job, if you want to be in the right place, if you want God to be proud of you, bishop, priest, monk, or nun, everything else, ah, God's not going to be that pleased with you. It's just kind of, we just have to have those things. But that's not the best place for you to serve. Here's what's staggering. That view, as crazy as that view is, went unchallenged for 1,200 years. That's staggering. 1,200 years, that's the way the world operates. You know what? I have this job, but I know that God is not pleased with my job because I'm a teacher. God is not pleased with me because I work in finance. God is not pleased with me because I'm a housewife, whatever it might be. And yet, bishop, priest, monk, or none, that was pushed so hard. Skip ahead to 516 or so AD, which was just kind of the point that the Reformation was just really starting to roll. And you have people out there like Luther and Calvin. Because at that point, the Catholic Church was, was an absolute mess. 
I mean, the Catholic Church was just in a very terrible place because it was driven so much by money. It was just all about, hey, listen, if you had money, you could get all sorts of positions. Yesterday, the Pope appointed a bunch of new cardinals. I don't know if you saw that. Way back when, you could become a cardinal. You could buy your way in. Parents would buy their teenagers, would buy teenagers the role of a cardinal. There were teenage cardinals at this time, which is just craziness. They said back then, you know what, you shouldn't read the Bible because you can't actually interpret the Bible, so you should never, ever read the Bible. The only ones who can read the Bible, bishop, priests, monks, or nuns. As a matter of fact, the worship service is going to be in Latin, so you're really not going to actually understand it anyway. And so it was just this huge mess. And in comes these reformers who come in, people like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and others, and they say, you know what, the church has been wrong in so many ways. Because the way that the church has got to understand, you know, just like the whole thing is this. We're saved by grace alone, by faith alone. It's for Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that was really a transformation. That was a transformation of the way the church had thought. And then they went on and they said certain things about the priesthood of all believers. They said, don't believe what you heard from Eusebius. What you heard from Eusebius 1,200 years ago, it's craziness because it's not what the Bible says. They were very, 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 very strong in this. And they said this, when there is a maid who is cooking and she makes the bed and she sweeps the house and the floors, she has every right to say this, my service is equal to cooking for the God in heaven. Because all Christians are of a spiritual estate. Every Christian, they said, every Christian has been absolutely called into their workplace. Once again, every Christian, no matter what your occupation, every Christian has been called into their workplace. Therefore, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're a CPA, if you're a retail worker, if you're a doctor, if you're a pastor, if you're an attorney, if you work at Home Depot, if you work at a gas station, if you're a broker, if you work in IT, if you're a waitress, if you're a roofer, if you're a secretary, if you sell insurance, if you're a nanny, if you sell real estate, if you're, in, you know, if you're involved in nonprofit, your work matters to God. Everybody, their work is equal before God. And the church has gotten that wrong for so, so long. Because we still have this mindset of if you really want to be in the middle of God's will, you've got to become a pastor or work for a nonprofit or something along those lines. And that is incredibly unbiblical. There's no support for that anywhere in Scripture. And so what we're going to just emphasize over the, these next four weeks is that wherever you are, wherever your job is right now, that's where God has called you to serve. That is your full-time ministry. So in one sense, if you follow Jesus, we all are called to full-time vocational ministry. Sometime, you know, some here might be called to full-time vocational pastoral ministry. Others, full-time business ministry, full-time teaching ministry, full-time sales ministry. But wherever you are, you've been called. But listen, there's confusion around this. There's chaos. Because work is hard. Work is challenging. Work carries so much with it. So let me just give you 10 really brief snapshots. I mean, like, just a sentence of things I've heard just very, very recently of things that just create this angst for work. And I would guess that maybe in one of these stories that you might think, well, wow, that sounds a lot like me. Kate is a burned-out nurse. 
She's worked 12-hour shifts over and over again. COVID has taken a massive toll on her mental health, and she doesn't know if she can go on in her workplace. And Monica is a college grad. She's educated and she's smart, but she can't find a place to serve right now, so she works at Walmart and she's embarrassed. Rich retired from Ford. He was a workaholic and he was so excited about retirement. He was excited for golf and for grandkids and for travel. Now he's bored to tears and his health is rapidly declining. Michael, sharp attorney, made 200,000 a year. I mean, right, right, you know, right, right here in Kansas City, he billed 300 hours a month, but he wanted more. So he went to New York to work at a law firm and that's where he's at now. But he's working so hard in New York that he has no time for anything, not for family, not for church, not for anything. Everything in his life right now is just work. And he's wondering if he made the right decision. Susan has a great job at a growing company. She has a high ceiling. She loves Jesus. She's very involved in her church, but she has no idea how to practically integrate faith into her work. Steve is unemployed. He feels worthless right now. He said he feels tra you know, tremendous amounts of fear and doubt and insecurity. Charles played football for the Green Bay Packers. He made millions of dollars. But now he sits in a dark room and he reads books trying to figure out what to do with his life. Football was his life. Now jobs are scarce for a man with really no skills except playing football. Jane is flourishing in the business world. As a matter of fact, she was named, I mean, like the, she got some big, big awards because she's just done so phenomenal. Yet she's struggling with guilt right now because she's thinking, maybe I should be using my talent at a nonprofit. And so maybe I should leave the workplace and go to work for some type of a nonprofit. Mark had an outstanding job. He wasn't sure exactly what's next, but he knew that work was dominating his life and was just creating no margin for his family. So he left his workplace just to give more time for his family, but he doesn't know exactly what's next. And Cindy is a stay-at-home mom who feels tremendously disrespected for all that she does for all of her work. That's just 10 very brief snapshots. Those are very real. Those are not made up. Those are very real stories of people struggling with work right now. So do you ever just stop and say to yourself, okay, why, why do we work? Why do we have to work? There, there would be a bunch here who would say, it's out of necessity. It's to put bread on the table. We have to eat, so I work for money. There would be other people say, well, I work for money, but I work for the American dream. I want to have a family. I want to have a home. I want to have a car. I want to be able to do these things. I want to travel a little bit. There's a lot of people that work for respect. They just say, I want to work because I believe that people will just look up to me. If I can just have a place where I can have some authority and just a small amount of attention, that's extremely important to me. There's other people that work just out of sheer boredom. They just say there, there's really nothing else to do. But the question is, what happens when the money dries up, when the opportunities halt? What happens when people don't like you at your workplace? What happens when you can't stand your coworkers? What happens when there's a downturn in the overall economy? What happens when your company downsizes? What would God know about that? What does the scripture have to say to those situations? And the answer is actually a great deal. Because if you work for your job, and if you think that a job is going to give you true self worth in life and if you think i go to my job 
because it gives me some true fulfillment. It's the one thing in life that actually gives me worth. It's going to slowly crush you. And it will ultimately, ultimately undermine society because that's not why we've been called to work. There are many, many more deep, deep reasons. God wants to release us from the crushing burden of working to prove ourselves. I think that's one more thing that you'll hear a lot throughout this series. So let's talk about the call to work. The call to work, which is found in Genesis 1. We were called to work. Why? Because God is a creative God. At the very start we read, and so God created. God created the heavens and the earth. In the very beginning, God worked. God created. God is the ultimate worker. God has always been there. It says this. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all of these wild animals, and over all of the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them, it says in verse 26, or 8, excuse me. He blessed them and said this, be fruitful and increase in number. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. That's the cultural mandate. That's our call. This is so important because God has said, I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to work. I want you to work to take care of this earth, but not just to take care of this earth, but to actually advance this earth. We have to realize that sin is going to take place in chapter 3. This is chapter 1. Work came before the fall. Work is a part of a perfect world. In a perfect culture, in a perfect society, there was work. Now, the angst and the toil and the sweat and the frustration of work, all of those things came as a result of sin. But before there was sin, there was work. Oftentimes people think, well, I can't wait to get to heaven because it's just going to be relaxing and it's going to be on a beach with Mai Tais. And man, that just sounds wonderful to me. Listen, you're going to have a job in heaven. We're going to work in heaven. We'll talk a bit more about this later. But there is absolutely work in heaven because heaven is a perfect place and in a perfect culture, work was absolutely there. It's interesting because God could have just spoken and created us, and we could have been born into a world that was just ready-made. He could have created this world with everything that we need right now as far as transportation and communication, and we could go on and on. God could have made that, but he didn't. He created a world in which there would need to be work, in which people would need to have jobs to do these different things in which we would be born and we wouldn't know everything. We would have to have teachers. We would not be able to do so many things that we long to do. So he created us to advance culture, to subdue it. So God did not place us on this earth to be park rangers, to just make sure that everything kind of stayed the same and just to kind of watch over things and make sure that it just stays status quo. That's not our role on this earth. We're much more, more like gardeners and farmers in the fact that we're here to work the earth and to work things and to make sure that things are done in a way so that order is brought out of chaos. So the question I hear so oftentimes is this. I really want to be able to say that I work and that God is pleased with my work. So if I want to be involved with my work, do I need to be involved in some type of full-time Christian ministry? Which means, do I need to work for like a Christian nonprofit? Do I need to... Do I need to leave the workplace where, where I'm at now and come to work at Hope Community in some type of a role? 
It's interesting because I think that there's been a lot of talk about this, especially in about the past 25 years, and that people that didn't mean certain things, it's been taken to a crazy place. So there was a book written back, back, back in 1995, which I bet a lot of you have read, called Halftime. And Halftime was a book saying, you know what, you need to come to a place in life where you move from success to real significance. And there were so many great principles in the book. The guy that wrote the book, very good, good, you know, guy, and he was actually, you know, he's actually a friend. But I think that so much of what he said was just taken and twisted because they're beginning to have this mindset of, hey, listen, you know what, here's what you should do. You should stay in your workplace now. You should make as much as you can. You should give to lots of nonprofits, which is greatly appreciated. You should do those types of things. But then eventually, you need to come to a place where you can move out of that workplace and move into a Christian nonprofit where you can really use your gifts and find not just value and not just real success, but you can find tremendous significance. And the way that that's been twisted is incredibly unbiblical. That's not anywhere in Scripture. And that is absolutely wrong. We should not move out of that. So let me make to you a sincere apology. If you have ever been made to feel in the church like the place where you work, it is secondary to, to some other role of a pastor or a missionary or a you know, person that works in nonprofit work. If, you ever been, have you, if you've ever been made to feel like your role is secondary, I'm, I'm sorry for that. I apologize to you because that's nowhere in Scripture. And we need to stand up for absolute truth. God has called us to be people that subdue the earth and to work and to flourish. But we need to also realize that we need to be those that work as Christians for God's good, for God's glory, and that our lives will be changed and transformed here. Listen, since all callings are from God, every calling has got equal value. The main goal of your work is not to make lots and lots of money so that you can give large amounts away. The goal of your work is to bring glory to God in what you do. Work's main goal is to live a life of worship through a lifestyle of God-honoring vocational faithfulness. Which means, so, if you take a person's blood pressure in your job, you're going to minister to your patient. If you teach somebody, you're going to minister to those students. If you work at a law firm, you're going to minister to your clients. If you drive for Uber, you're going to minister to your passengers. If you, you know what, if you wait tables, you're going to actually be a minister to your customers. We have to understand wherever you've been called right now, you've been called into full-time Christian ministry. And you don't have to leave your workplace to absolutely make sure that that is affirmed. So especially young people, choose where you believe that God has wants you, you know, just choose, okay, this is where I believe, you know, actually God wants me to go. Go to that place and work in that place and use that place as a place of ministry and know that God is absolutely proud of you. He's proud of you. And so third, there's the core of work. The core of work. It's interesting because it says this in uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. So God finished his work that he'd been doing. He finished his work. And so he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed that day and he made it holy because he rested from all of the work that he had done. 
it's interesting that we see that God is a God that works. Here's the key to so much of what we will talk about. The Hebrew word for work there is the word avodah. Avodah, it's a phenomenal word in the Hebrew. And it says that God worked. And then that same word is in verse 15. The Lord God took man and he took him in the, and, and he is placed there in the garden to work it and to take care of it. So mankind has been called to work. We've been called to avodah. And that word means this. It means to work to serve, to cultivate, and to be craftsmen. But here's what that word also means. That is the Hebrew word for worship. Now listen, the word avodah is one Hebrew word which means work and worship. It's the same word. It's the exact same word. And this is God trying to do everything he can to make so clear. There's not a separation between the secular and the sacred. There's not a separation between your workplace and worship. It's all one. As a matter of fact, I'm going to use the same word. So that word work, that word like avodah, it's all throughout the scriptures. So the backbreaking work in which you have to make these bricks in Egypt, that's the word avodah. But the artists, as they create things in the tabernacle, and as they work to create things of amazing beauty. That's the word, which is avodah. The work of the priests and the Levites to lead worship, that is the word avodah. So the work of God, the plan of God, is that our work and our worship would be blended seamlessly together. That is why it is so important to make sure that we connect work and worship. So Sunday has got to flow into Monday. They are connected. They do work together because it's the exact same word. God's plan is for those things to be used, and so for our calling, for, our, for like all of our, you know, just for all of our work to be used as real, true worship. We're not meant to be you know, compartmentalized. And so, there are so many work lies out there, I think, that we oftentimes believe, and the, these are work lies. Work, work is just a necessary evil. I have to do it. That's a lie. Worship on Sunday has nothing to do with work on Monday. That's absolutely a lie. Lower paying jobs are an assault upon our dignity. That's a tremendous lie. To work with the mind, it brings real dignity, but to work with your hands, it's oftentimes humiliation. That is an absolute lie. In a perfect world, there would be no work. Which is why so many people play the lottery, right? Because you want to be able to quit your job and stop working. That's an absolute lie. And that was propagated over and over again by Plato and by Aristotle. And so many philosophers said that we need to do everything we can to withdraw from work because work is ultimately evil. Once again, more and more lies. Listen, work is a thing which is absolutely important for, for each one of us. It's a basic human need. Work is a service, and we need to all be engaged in work. So, I realize as I talk about this that there could be a thousand questions. We don't have time for everything here, but let me just hit a few that I'm just very, very oftentimes asked. Because people say, okay, if we've been called to work, and if so much of what God wants us to do is to work, what do you do about the unemployed? What do you do about the retired? What do you do about people with special needs? What do you do about prisoners? What do you do about work in heaven? I mean, like, is that actually real? So I'm just going to walk through, through some things very quickly that I hope will be just really, really practical. 
First of all, unemployment. There's no doubt that that can really seriously wound a spirit because we were built to work. And so people can start to feel like they're worthless and they just start to have all of these doubts about life. But I believe that you need to use this time to make sure that you understand that your worth is not found in your work. Your worth is found ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. And your work is an outworking of what you've been called to do. So if right now, if you don't have a job, I would encourage you to understand God will use this for good in your life. That's his absolute, that, that, I mean, that's his word, right? It's his promise. But I would just encourage you to treat your look for a job as your job. Treat work, treat the fact that you have to look for work, treat that as work. So right now, I don't have work, but every day, I want to make sure that I work hard from 8 to 5 trying to find a job and that that becomes just the way that you have that overall routine. Establish a work schedule. What about retirement? Is retirement talked about in the Bible? Actually, it's not. We're told maybe a few times the fact that it might be right to slow down, we're told, told like actually in Proverbs 6, but nowhere does it talk about retirement. That's a new concept. That's because of the whole, I mean, like industrial revolution, but that's a concept that's actually very, very new, but it's nowhere in Scripture. And so we have to find ways to still stay involved, even though we might be retired, so, which means we need to look for ways to be actively involved in places as, as I mean, like, you, 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 you don't even volunteers and such. But don't just think, you know what, I have retired, so my goal in life is to uh, win, you know, the uh, golf. I want to, you know, I'm just going to play golf just night and day, and I want to learn how to ball, you know, I want to, you know, I want to learn how to dance, and I want to play a lot, you know, whatever it might be. Listen, those things are fine as long as those aren't the things that give you self-worth. Because there still has to be a way for you to engage and to work. And so find a place where you can serve. Come here to the church and serve. If you've actually retired, there are ways that you can stay very, very involved and that you can still do work. But don't have your goal to say, you know what, my goal is golf and travel and shuffleboard and whatever else. Make sure that your goal is still, I want to find ways to work to bring glory to God through what he has called me to do. If you have special needs, what do you do? Let me just say this. God bless. God bless B&B theaters and Jose Peppers and the Home Depot and Wendy's and McDonald's and Walgreens and Chick-fil-A and Target. God bless those companies that hire people that have special needs. God bless them. And I would encourage you, when you go into some type of a workplace and somebody there has got special needs and it's a little bit slower, be patient with them, affirm them, love on them. I realize, you know, there might be some times in which it feels just, just a bit awkward, uh, but just be patient and just thank them for everything that they do. If you go to Jose Peppers at 103rd, 3rd and Metcalf, trust me, Matt will be there at the door. He'll greet you. It'll be a little bit awkward. But you know what, though? He's the greatest kid in the world. Find their boss and just say, thank you for hiring people here that have special needs. Because even people with special needs need to have the great dignity that comes from work. What if you're in prison? I have a friend named Pete, and uh, he makes lawnmower seats. 
And if you have a lawnmower that you ride on, uh, Pete's business made that seat because he has like every contract in the country. He makes every lawnmower seat out there. His business is in, uh, it's, it's an amazing place. It's in Hutchinson, Kansas. And his business that makes all of these lawnmower seats is in the Hutchinson Maximum Security Prison. And the people that work for him are prisoners there. And this prison has thousands of inmates. But if you have really strong behavior and if you do the right things, um, you'll be picked to be a part of this workplace. And it's amazing because you're going to make a salary. You're going to make money. You're going to be blessed to have a job. And it's incredible. The people that work for Pete, and I mean, like, it's hundreds of, of people there. But those that work for Pete, I mean, like, the fights go down and just so many issues go way, way down. And these are the most happy people in prison. I've been there with them. I've watched them. I've spoken with them. It's an absolutely incredible business. I mean, Pete is a genius because this business is in a maximum security prison and he's thriving and he's able to bless each one of these inmates in ways that would just blow your mind. And the inmates know every week if there's no fights, if there's no problems, and if we all work hard every Friday, we get McDonald's for lunch. And you cannot believe what a big deal it is for those inmates to get, I'm, you think, wow, I mean, they love me. I mean, it's, it's a big, big deal. But it's so powerful. It's so powerful because we have been called to work. Even those in prison have been called to work. There will be work in heaven. Please, please understand that. There will be work in heaven. There will be new skills that we will learn in heaven. There will be things that we might start to do for the first time, time, time actually in heaven. It's very possible that your job on this earth will prepare you for your job in heaven. However, if you're in healthcare or insurance or in law, sorry, uh, there's, no practicing, there's no practicing attorneys in heaven. I believe that there are actually attorneys in heaven. There's no practicing attorneys in heaven. There's no practicing insurance salesman in heaven. All of those things. If you're a worship leader, that's like job security. I mean, because you might be able to do that same thing actually up in heaven. We will have jobs in heaven. We will work in heaven. But there will be no conflict. There will be no pain, no agony, no 20-minute lunches, no rude co-workers. Those things will not exist. It will be an absolutely perfect environment. So what's the application? It's so good to find people that work in your field. And talk with them. How can we integrate our Christian faith in our workplace? How can we find ways in our workplace to be those who have been called to actually serve and to work? What, what are the implications for us of our work and our worship being actually seamless together? How can the deep rest that Jesus Christ brings us in the Gospels, how can that transform the way that you think and act about work? And how can the Gospel shape just overall in the way that you work? Here's the greatest thing about work. Ultimately, our self-worth is not found in work because Jesus came and the work of Jesus was finished upon the cross and at the resurrection. And because Jesus Christ came and that work was done, he said, it is finished. My work is finished because of the fact that Jesus Christ came. We can find great rest and great hope. You see, Jesus Christ offers you 
the fact that you can rest. Even though you're going to work hard, you can still find tremendous rest in your work because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has given you. So I have a friend, and he has a girl, and she just, just is trying to get things going, going actually in college, and she's very frustrated, and she came home, and she said, there's this English class, and it's the, this terribly hard advanced class, and I can't do it. I have to transfer out. I have to be in, a, in you know, some class that's just not quite so hard. And her dad said, sweetheart, you can do it, Robin. You, you can do it because you're so smart. She said, dad, dad, I can't do it. I have to transfer out as oftentimes happens at the start of school. So they go to school, and they go in, and they speak with this teacher, and, and he said, you know what, uh, I think that she needs to be in some other class, because just because she has such fear, and she just has so much fear about this, because she's so just unbelievably, you know, I mean, I mean, it gets about her grades and everything else, and uh, so this kind, wise teacher just listened and said, um, Okay, you know what, I, I, I can understand what you're saying. Can I just speak here with Robin for a little bit? And he said, sure. And she, she said, Robin, I have great confidence in you. I know that you can do this, so here's the deal. You're going to get an A in my class. No matter what you do, you're going to get an A in my class. Right now, your grade for this whole, whole semester, it's an A, I promise you. You made an A in my class. Do you want to be in my class? And Robin's not stupid, so she was, you know, she, she had just all sorts of tears, and all of a sudden it's like, well, okay. I kind of like that deal. I think I could do that. Okay, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And last year this happened, and Robin goes through the class, and you know what? She made an A in the class for real. But the fact that there was not that pressure freed her to absolutely do this amazing work. Listen, grace mobilizes performance. Performance does not mobilize grace. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And here's the joy. We're at the start of school, so, you know, we think about grades and everything else. When you come down this aisle and you take the bread and the cup, listen, Jesus Christ says to you, you're going to get an A. You're going to get an A. You got an A. That's it. And so our performance is a result of the fact that Jesus Christ has said, there's nothing that you can do to cause a B or a C or a D. You're going to get an A. Because of my love for you, I can promise you right now that you're going to be affirmed and loved and cared for, and you have an A. And that's going to encourage us to do all the more to walk with Jesus. Because grace spurs on performance. Performance does not spur on grace. So as we come and we partake of this amazing meal, I want you to understand God has given us A's. And so the pressure's off in one sense, right? Because we don't have to perform and perform and do all of these things to make God proud. God is proud now. And what we do is a result and a response to what he has already done for us. So praise God that we have that amazing gift. So you'll be able to come and to take the bread and the cup and hear this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood which has been shed for you. This meal is for believers. If you're still wrestling right now and you're thinking, I don't know if I've actually trusted Jesus, I would encourage you to just stay in your seat. That's absolutely fine. And just contemplate the things that the Lord has done for you. But we are here today because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ.
That's what brings us here. God came to do a work on this earth, and his work was completed. And because of that, we can have tremendous freedom and joy and a true calling in our workplace. So you come and partake of this meal and receive the goodness and grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the fact that we've been called to work, but Father, we thank you that we can also find rest in that because the ultimate work has been done. The work has been completed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we confess to you, we have really messed up work. Uh, gosh, we've messed it up, especially in the church. And there's so much of the fumes of Eusebius that are still out there, just with just so much of this craziness of, uh, I can't be in the midst of God's will because I'm not a pastor, because I'm not a missionary, because I'm not of this nonprofit. Father, help us all to understand the place where we are right now. If we're at Starbucks, if we have to dig ditches, no matter where we are, the place where we are right now is a place that we've been called by you, and that can be our full-time Christian ministry. Father, just allow us to believe that and to understand the great things that you can do through us. Father, help us understand that work and worship they all go together. And so tomorrow, this is one more piece of our worship before you as we go to work. Uh, so, Father, thank you. Thank you that we have A's before you and that we can find great confidence in the fact um, that there's nothing that we can do to make you possibly, possibly love us more. There's nothing we can do to make you love us less. And that's our confidence. That's our hope. That's our redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, the head of this church, amen. When you're ready, you come.